Before the Rings of Power, there were the Silmarils. Before Sauron, there was his master, Morgoth. Before Aragorn and Arwen, there was... Nobody expects the Torque Inquisition. Hey everybody, welcome to the Torque Inquisition, uh, the offshoot of our standard Window on the West podcast where we're not actually reading The Silmarillion or The Histories of Middle-Earth or Leaf by Niggle or any other stories by J.R. Tolkien. We're actually interviewing people that are more interesting than me, than Michael, and then, well, then maybe than Dan, but Dan's pretty interesting on his own. Uh, yeah. Most of the time. <laughs> most of the time. Uh, today, we're, we have the, the pleasure of interviewing uh, Austin Freeman, who... Uh, is smarter than us. He has a PhD in systematic theology from, let me sure I get this right, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He is currently faculty at Houston Christian University. And what's important to us is a, one he knows Tolkien incredibly well because he wrote a book, a book called Tolkien Dogmatics, The Theology Through Mythology with the Maker of Middle-Earth. Uh, and it sounds harder than it reads. So let me just start that out, right? I think it's actually a pretty accessible book if you know Tolkien in particular. Um, but we're going to jump into that. Before we do, we will have an extended podcast. We will have um, our, our now our infamous uh, confessions from the comfy chair that we will ask Austin at the end of this podcast. And, um, and to get that, you can go to uh, thewondering.com slash patron, where you can get access to our Discord chat. You get the access to the extended podcast. Uh, you get access to uh, the message board that we have there. Um, and we, we do a week a monthly video chat with our folks. Uh, I think it's every third Saturday now. It's officially in the books. So we can do that there. Uh, but we want to jump right in. And I want to I ask you, Austin, how did you start reading Tolkien? What was it that brought you into that world? Many ages ago. Um, so I was in elementary school. I think I was probably in fourth or fifth grade. And uh, I had a gym teacher, and she just sort of recognized that I had an intellectual curiosity, and she handed me this book called The Hobbit. Um, she said, hey, I think you'd like this. And uh, I did like it, lo and behold. And um, I read it probably two grade levels ahead of where we were supposed to be reading it. And um, read Lord of the Rings, read The Silmarillion, read Unfinished Tales, um, even read the, the Tolkien Reader and some of the other stuff. And um, but I was still a fan. I was just a, sort of a, a, a casual fan until um, I finished my master's degree at the University of Edinburgh. And uh, I was transitioning into doctoral work, and I started thinking about um, Tolkien's uh, theology of evil. And the more I dug into it, the more I realized, hey, there's a lot of academic work that can be done here. And there's a lot of things that Tolkien has to say about theology. So um, during my PhD program, actually, I sort of was was on a dual track. And uh, while I was writing about uh, the dogmatic location of paradox in theology, I was also writing Tolkien dogmatics. And um, actually, at my at my doctoral dissertation defense, my supervisor, Kevin Van Hooser, he's like, I'm going to time how long it takes for for Austin to make a Tolkien reference. And I think, <laughs> it, I, think I think it was 10 minutes. <laughs> that um, long, huh? huh? Yeah. Took a long bad. time. Too bad. Hmm. Wish you were a real fan. Yeah. Sorry, guys. I'm, I'm outed. So that's it. So, so then, so you read the books before, let me see, fourth grade. You read the books before you saw the movies? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. oh, cool. Mm -hmm. wow. Yeah. So the movies came out when I was in seventh grade. Mm -hmm. I went with my Dungeons and Dragons party because I'm cool like that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, like I, I was able to get that 
the images in my head, like unadulterated by the Peter Jackson sort of lens. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they're still my favorite movies, but they live in a different part of my brain. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's funny because for me, I like I hated the Fellowship of the Ring when I first saw it because it totally messed up everything that I knew about Tolkien. And it's taken it took me like probably till I saw the extended edition a couple of times for me to actually appreciate it as a very quality film. Well, much like in Middle Earth, um, as it turns out, um, works on Tolkien just get worse and worse as time goes on. So by the time the Rings of Power comes around, <laughs> Jonathan's looking, we're looking back at the Hobbit, even the Hobbit movies, which were awful. Hey, there's some great fan edits of the Hobbit out available. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a one film edit that actually was pretty good. Yeah, that's, this is true. There, there were, in fact, chunks of The Hobbit that I liked. And I saw the edit and I proved. Um, that brings me to my first question, actually, which was when I read the book, I was—I well, think I might have been expecting something different, which was, so, Austin, are you really a theologian or are you just an historian in theologian's clothing? Because, so my, my background academically, graduate studies is in history. And your book, this book is a solid over 12% references, bibliography, indices, et cetera. And uh, I, I, I've, I've yet to read a better researched theological work or in, in that regard. So uh, I was mightily impressed. So I, I, see, I still think that you're just, you're just a, uh, an historian. Because of... <laughs> or, well, and, and to, 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 to book and, or to prefix that a little bit, why did you write the book and why, why so specifically about theology? And you can, yeah. I'm sure you can tie that right into Michael's question. Yeah. So, I mean, you're not wrong, Michael, like my, my master's degree is in historical theology um, and my, my PhD is in systematics. And so you'll, you'll recognize that the book is organized hmm. systematically, but it, it really is a blend of the two. And that's where I find myself uh, in terms of my research interests, um, very heavy into the church fathers, medieval uh, scholasticism, things like that. Um, so the, the reason why I, I think it sort of strides a middle ground is that we, we need a book that talks about what Tolkien thought. There are a lot of other books that deal with spiritual themes in the Lord of the Rings or like devotional readings of the Lord of the Rings or things like that. And some of them are very good. Like Matthew Dickerson has, has a great book that like, deals with things like this. But, um, but there wasn't any sort of manual, a co- comprehensive manual of Tolkien's theology. Um, and so Middle Earth obviously plays a, a prominent role in that because it plays a prominent role in his published corpus. But this is really more about Tolkien the man than it is about Middle Earth specifically. Mm. Um, and so the, the Tolkien dogmatics is uh, heavily historically researched because I want to, to present what Tolkien thought. Uh, you know, I myself am not a Roman Catholic. There's things in, in the book that I don't personally disagree or that I don't personally agree with. But I, I'm trying to give an accurate uh, well-presented overview of what Tolkien himself thought as a jumping-off point to further resource. But that being said, there is a gap in Tolkien scholarship um, of people who are, are are theologically informed to the the degree that would be necessary to write something like this. Um, so there there is a lot of good theological work being done on Tolkien by you know people like Craig Boyd, um, uh, Matthew Dickerson does good theological work, John Houghton like other people that are that are doing good stuff. But um, a lot of Tolkien fandom, a lot of Tolkien scholarship just does not have the, the background in theological categories that would have come naturally to Tolkien when he approaches this material. So I felt that, that I, as a systematic theologian, uh, had the tools um, to be able to go through the material, organize it, understand it contextually, both in terms of Tolkien's life and in terms of the... the theological conversation and sort of present it in an easily, hopefully easily digestible format for other people that 
that did not have the time, the energy, or the privilege to be able to study theology to the extent that I did. I, I, it did, and I know I'm going to use it as a reference point for a lot of um, point uh, topics that we cover on our podcast in the Silmarillion because you, you brought in some some of the works that I had never I'd never had any contact with that I was it was very impressive. Thank you. Yeah, the it's interesting that, that you say there are good people doing uh, work on theology and Tolkien because I think most of us are experienced, uh, especially now with what the Tolkien Society has become, experience bad. Yeah. <laughs> bad uh, a, a, a approach to anal analysis of Tolkien. Um, and I like how you started this because I think what people think uh, when when you say you're, you know, you're going to take a theological approach to Tolkien, it's like, okay, so uh, Frodo is, or Aragorn is Jesus and Galadriel is Mary. Like they try and they, they, they create an analogy between the characters and they almost make it an allegory. But um, like the one, the, what you wrote right in the beginning, I think it's in your uh, your prologue, your your, your intro, we wrote, uh, we should look for Christian theology, not in the explicit elements of the tales, after all, they're set in a pre-Christian world, but in the deep structure of the story and its metaphysics, ethics, and in the shape of its plot. And so that's what that's what I think makes makes at least um, as a whole your book interesting is that it's not it's not a search for hints and for clues and for like, OK, Tolkien meant this and Tolkien meant that. But you can see how uh, the Tolkien's how Tolkien's whole life shaped Middle Earth, and how it, it even at the as he progressed, you know how I think he wrote how Galadriel changed to Tolkien uh, mm -hmm. through, especially like right right into up until he died. Uh, but maybe talk a little bit about that, about how how you do approach it as as from a holistic view rather than just okay because Tolkien was Catholic, then now, now Galadriel is Mary. Yeah, yeah, the, he he's a, a much more sophisticated thinker than that, and I don't think he gets enough credit as a sort of universal synthetic Renaissance man and and master of many domains um I, I try to separate in the book so that there's my voice doesn't really come into the book i've had some people offer criticisms online that says how does freeman distinguish between what tolkien says and what he thinks and i say in in the prolegomena i'm not really putting in what i think um every and that's one of the reasons why i source it so heavily uh, is because there are a lot of people like the people in the tolkien society that are going to heavily disagree with some of the conclusions that this book draws about what Tolkien believed. Um, and so they they need to go and argue with Tolkien himself and not with me. Right? That's why I provide the footnotes. <laughs> yeah. So the, the 125 pages of footnotes, just so everyone knows. <laughs> when I turned when I turned in the first draft of the manuscript, I think it was something like 2000 footnotes that I had counted. Wow. Um, but the, part of that is Part of that is because there are people that are going to disagree, but part of it is because like when I write my chapter on, on um, creation or when I write my chapter on eschatology, like that's pretty much everything that he says about it um, is hmm. cited somewhere. Um, mm -hmm. Not, not 100%, but like pretty dang close. Um, so that's, that's another reason why it's so heavily footnoted is, is as, as a gift to the future. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the, the idea that Tolkien, um, has this sort of standard uh, Catholic catechism theology um, is not really intellectually um, independent, sort of accepts and imbibes, right? Nobody, no first-class thinker of the, of the sort that Tolkien was uh, treats theology that way. Uh, I mean, there, there's a reason why we have world-class Roman Catholic theologians that were Tolkien's contemporaries that, that were, that were crafting, you know, wonderful statements of modern theologies because the the catechism the the dogmas are a jumping off point they're not an end-all be-all um so 
Tolkien himself wants to come under the obedience to the magisterium. He wants to, to be faithful to the, to the deposit of, um, that he's received from the apostles and from other things, but um, that doesn't mean that he can't offer his own unique and original perspectives. And so the, the way that I organize the book is I try very sharply to distinguish between, like, this is Tolkien's non-fictional statements, and then this is how he instantiates it in Middle-earth. So, like, the, the chapter on angelology or, or demonology would be a great example of this. Tolkien has non-fictional statements in his letters and in other places where he says, this is how angels operate, or right? This is what I think a guardian angel mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. um, but then there are also major characters in Middle-earth, like Gandalf, who are fictional versions of angels. And so we do have to separate that because he himself says that there's not necessarily a one-to-one -one correspondence. Right? Tolkien doesn't believe just because Gandalf has a physical body and is open to temptation throughout the time that he's in Middle-earth. Tolkien doesn't believe that Gabriel could somehow fall. Right. 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 So Tolkien's thought is so systematic. It is so integrated um, and, and interconnected. And so the, it, it does take a while and, and a good experience of the whole of Tolkien's writings to be able to sort of suss out what he would say is acceptable in the real world and what he would say is, is weird. Like, for instance, he believes in elven reincarnation in Middle Earth. Right? He doesn't believe in it. He writes about elven reincarnation. <laughs> But he explicitly does not believe that reincarnation is a thing. And there are a lot of people that adopt Tolkien for their sort of new age agendas that want to, to use him as a source for talking about, you know, um, Dragonkin and, and oh um, gosh, really all that sort of. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Oh uh, there's actually there's a I think he's a German guy. It's a fascinating research project about um, new religious movements and Tolkien specifically about people who believe that they are elves. Wow. Tolkien had this sort of revelation of the the elder days. And, you know, I, I mean, I don't know how, how genuine these people are, or if this is a sort of posture that they're putting up. But in terms of like a religious studies project, hey, that's, that's it worked for L. Ron Hubbard. Absolutely. Made him a lot of money. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> L. Ron uh, Hubbard. Yeah. Yeah. What? L. Ron Hubbard. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that's what oh, Jonathan was saying at first. Oh, that's so bad. Okay, so okay, right. So this brings up the whole question that you bring up about interpretation, and and uh, as a uh, as a literary scholar too, interpretation was always the problem going through school, or going, or, or even speaking with anybody who has any degree of any sort is like interpretation uh, is completely meaningless to me right now because it, they read themselves into whatever it is that they uh, they that were maybe the better word is they they inflict themselves on the work mm -hmm. so that we have to deal with their and them and their thoughts, and we get that the famous Tolkien Society from 2021, I think it was, where we had, you know, the the approach of like uh, transgendered, cis, hetero, all this mumbo jumbo, like they, they, they assume big long words mean a whole lot of, uh, uh, you know, it gives them meaning in order to create these sort of realities out of a place that it wasn't meant to be. So coming to Tolkien from that, right, your book tends it, it doesn't do that right you like like you said the footnotes and all that sort of stuff and so i appreciated how much real criticism there was in there because when you make a claim that you know that tolkien had you know he believed he was inspired but not in the same way that you believe like a prophet was inspired or i, I don't remember the exact analogy that you gave and so there's 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 a lot of meaning that you can get out of your book without actually uh diving into uh your mind Mm -hmm. as much as Tolkien's mind. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I really was conscious as I wrote it that I, I want this to be a descriptive work. I don't want this to be a mm. normative work, right? This is a description of Tolkien's thought world and, and of the yeah. way that he, that he thought. Um, so this is a, a project in religious studies more than in theology in, in that sense, right? This is a, an academic examination of a particular man and his mind. So um, on that topic, how well received is Tolkien in Christian circles today, theologically and or literarily? Very. Um, he, he is a very popular, remains very popular, at least in my circles. The, the issue is the people that are theologians that really like Tolkien sort of like him as a, uh, at a lay level or at a popular level. And the people who are writing um, credentialed English papers on Tolkien are not theologians. So there's mm -hmm. a gap, right? There, mm -hmm. there are plenty of people who have theology degrees who like Tolkien, and there are plenty of people who have literature degrees but don't have as much theology. Um, and so the, the fact that theology so undergirds Tolkien's work in, in a self-confessed sense means that we need a, a, a work that can familiarize both audiences with one another. So Jonathan, you're right. Like the, the issue of interpretation is a big one. So um, people that, you know, maybe youth pastors or, or, or other pastors, the, the uh, people in the pews, uh, even theologians that that are not like professional literary critics, they have other skill sets. Um, the The issue of interpretation is a real one, and it is a live one, and it needs to be uh, addressed. Oh. Um, but at the same time, from the literary critical angle, there are particular assumptions that Tolkien has about what a text is and how it operates, which are theological assumptions. Uh, and not everybody is as familiar with that. Like, I mean... Tom Shippey, like Tom Shippey is the number one name in Tolkien studies. Tom Shippey is, is not, to my knowledge, a, a confessed Christian. Um, and he will say that, like there, he, he's a very knowledgeable person and he treats it with a lot more respect than other people do. Um, hmm. But like hmm. there, there are certain touchstones that Tom Shippey does not have access to because he doesn't have the, the framework that that theology provides. You know, I, th I think it's well put. When I was in, I was in uh, England uh, for my master's in 2000, and to much where, where much to the chagrin of the British literati at that time, uh, Tolkien was voted the best uh, uh, fictional work of the 20th century, and and so and I remember the backlash and all the papers and you know people uh, people up uh, the the good and the great up in arms about um, about this fact. And it does seem to have become kind of a staple that Tolkien literarily is now much more respected than he was. I remember, you know, my in-laws view, they grew up in the 60s of Tolkien was was sort of frivolous fantasy. I grew up in the 80s. So I was I, I remember very clearly the, the whole association of Tolkien with sort of the satanic panic thing. I was also a D&D player as well. So I, I got the other end of that yeah. stick. Um so there's, but I look forward to the time you mentioned earlier that Tolkien is more of a Renaissance man, and I agree, and I think that his, his his thought is worthy of study on a number of levels, which is why I was so excited about this book. I, for example, look forward to the day, you, you, you touch on it, when, when folks can uh, examine aspects of Tolkien, such as, for example, his views on um, what 
incarnation could possibly mean for an angelic being and by by extension for for christ you know he would of course i don't think he would be so so bold as to claim that this is a theological treatise of any kind but his insights i think are 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 something very interesting fascinating even and and so i love the fact that you touched on that aspect of of and and i and i was dearly hoping as well that you weren't uh having watched, I don't know if you watched Rings of Power, but if you didn't, uh, there was one aspect of Meteor Man, as they called him, which, you know, the, 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 unknown Ishtari, not Gandalf. Ishtari, the, not Gandalf. <laughs> yeah, definitely. When I was, where there were actually two points in your, in your book where you referenced the fact that, um, that Tolkien was uh, maybe more than two, maybe three, but, uh, where, where Tolkien had said that, um, the, uh, Ishtari had to relearn things when they, when, when they, were incarnated mm-hmm. and uh, i wondered if actually i always made the joke in our podcast there was one good writer on in on the team of the rings of power that every once in a while on some in some episodes like a line would come through or a concept come through i'm like that person actually understands tolkien yeah. all right um so i didn't know if uh it, i'm hoping you don't think that justifies meteor man but uh but regardless i i did enjoy very much the elements of your your book which touched on um, Tolkien's use of his the imaginary work as a doorway to the theological. Uh, yeah, and, and I mean, even this happens, sorry, this happens in philosophy all the time, right? Like modern philosophy lives in the realm of the thought experiment. That's right, right, and so that's what fiction is. Fiction is just a sustained thought experiment. Uh, it's a, it is a mm-hmm. what if that allows us to tease out our intuitions about different states of the world. So what if there were other conscious, sentient, insouled beings other than humankind? Like, what what would that mean on a mm. theological, metaphysical level? Um, th- I mean, that's what that's what fantasy is. That's why fantasy is so impactful, because uh, it, it is the, the wildest, most expansive form of thought experiment that you can have. And I think that's why a lot of people in the theology disciplines are so accepting of it and, and are so... Um, mm. Uh, open to it because that's how they think right theology and philosophy like we're we're okay with the sort of what if scenarios uh, where ironically people in the english departments are much more concerned with like the socio-political economic um like mm-hmm. the, the historical materialists more or less uh concerns of the text they're trying to get behind the text to the facts and uh the, the, it seems like theology and philosophy people are doing it the other way around um, but but the the issue of interpretation of texts is is a big one, and so like my my PhD supervisor was Kevin Van Hooser. He's sort of like the the doyen of theological interpretation right now. Um, and for for those of you guys that are not familiar with Kevin Van Hooser that are listening, um, he, he has numerous works. He's very prolific. But I, I say in the prolegomena that my method of hermeneutics is basically just like Van Hooser's method. And so what he's very good at is not just dismissing. Uh, modern literary critical theories wholesale. Um, so like the death of the author is not the devil, right? There are really good insights that we get from modern literary criticism, even from people like Derrida or Ricoeur or other folks like this um, that that are really useful in our understanding of how, uh, of what we do when we read. Uh, and I'm conscious of that. I'm not just trying to, to shunt Tolkien back into a, uh, an uncritical pre-modern mold. Uh, what I want to do is say that for Tolkien, what he thinks that he is doing is 
basically saying that the the author's interpretation is is the most important factor. Um, now, Tolkien himself acknowledges the importance of the community's uh, response to a work. Tolkien himself acknowledges the contextual nature of any text. Um, mm. He also believes that there are things that are not true about the work because that's not what he meant, mm -hmm. right? Like when somebody says, oh, Tom Bombadil is Yahweh. He says, no, that's not right. <laughs> I really liked it when Tolkien uh, had thoughts about the American hippie culture in the seventies that was kind of appropriating Lord of the Rings. You know, that, that's really like the death of the author right there. It's like, Oh, Frodo's ours. It's our, it's our message. And Tolkien's like, no, nope, you're just a bunch of hippies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, Michael. Oh, I was gonna, I was gonna mention a couple things. One was I, how did you, was it just the study of Tolkien of the, of the text as you were doing research for the book, or was it something that you had thought about before or written on before the catch that you had about the, um, the three kinds of sin that Tolkien focuses on, uh, or tools of the enemy, which everyone talks about deceit domination first and foremost, cause it's central, but then deceit as a tool. Um, but you, your catch about idolatry, I thought was fascinating and awesome because it, it is absolutely true. And it, I mean, theologically speaking, of course, if you're going to, you're looking at the theology of the thing, um, turns out the first commandment is the first. And so, so there's, there, it was especially appropriate. Was that something that you had thought of before or did you no. just catch that as you were studying? No, that was something that arose based on the research. Like there were several points in the book that I sort of, when I started compiling these things based on their, their subject matter and reading through them and sort of formulating how they all fit together, that was one that I was like, oh, wow, this is a big deal. That's very cool. That's, that, that's the most fun with, with research yeah. in my, in my experience, limited experience. But there's, one, there's, there's one moment, which I've not heard anybody else talk about. Um, where it talk, it, he sort of goes into a flashback about the first time Gollum meets Shelob, and Worship. and it says he worships her. Yep. Um, like he bows down and worships her, and nobody has ever like hmm. I've never heard anybody even cite that passage. And it's one of what three huh. times that worship is directly mentioned in yeah. Lord of the Rings. Yeah. When we're talking about interpretation and um, how fantasy is sort of the ultimate. Uh, I don't know what, what, how did how did you put it? Fantasy ultimate is the ultimate, yeah, yeah, ultimate thought experience, which in a sense means it's the ultimate form of subcreation, mm -hmm. in a way. Um, and the the one quote that stood out for me from the entire book was how you uh, took subcreation and and you made it completely accessible. You you defined it for everybody in a way. And you wrote you wrote this: the goal of subcreation is art rather than power, which is ultimately the same as a domination and tyrannical reformation of God's good world. Though the Valar, for example, are powerful sub-creators assisting in making ordering, ordering reality, they cannot change its fundamental laws. And I think, like, so, so, I've never thought of sub-creation as, um, as an art rather than power, right? And, and, and the way I look at it now, I don't know, to bring it into the modern perspective, back into a little bit of interpretation, is that when we, when the goal of your art is to grab power, you minimize its ability as a subcreative force. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? Yep. Right. That, so, so that's what happens when you say like, okay, well, look at the diversity we have, look at the representation we have, look at how we're using the words, <laughs> okay. And dude, and Tolkien now, I don't know, using <laughs> dude, they're using, okay. They used, okay. And I was just, when I heard that it was horrible, but yeah. So, um, 
I don't know. I don't know if there's more to say, be, be said about that in particular, but I, I just loved how you wrote subcreation is art rather than power. And once you start injecting power into me, like that was like, okay, th th then, then we start diminishing, diminishing, diminishing until it's meaningless. Yeah. A um, couple things like the, the, this idea that subcreation cannot change the, the laws of primary creation. Um, Tolkien doesn't come up with this. He, he takes this from George MacDonald and from other of the, mm. of the earlier British romantics. Um, and I have another project that I'm working on right now that, that sort of construes Tolkien as a part of this school of, of, of British theological romanticism. And George MacDonald is part of it. Chesterton and Lewis are part of it. But then there's also other figures that like a lot of people don't know as much, like John Ruskin and William Morris, um, that these these other we got some <laughs> thumbs up here from Michael, um, like the, these people that are really theorizing about what art is for and what place art plays in the culture and how it can comment upon the culture uh and for all of these people the goal of art is to um reflect to embellish to glorify like primary reality like the primary act of creation mm. um and that's very very different than what a lot of modern fantasy is doing like i was at a, a an event at the university of glasgow uh, they have a center for fantasy literature and I, I went to i digitally went to the to the launch of it and in one of the speakers, I forget who it was, basically said that for them, fantasy is like a palimpsest, right? It's like, you're, I'm, I want to erase and write over and redo what the world is like because it does not satisfy me. So I'm going to yeah. remake it um, according to my image, uh, more or less what they're saying. And uh, that is just diametrically opposite of what Tolkien wants to do. Um, so he, he wants in his art to acknowledge uh, what God has done, and then also acknowledge how powerful God is and that he can take it in a lot of different ways. Um, and so the idea uh, that there there is an essence to God, right? Like God has a nature, which is the same in all possible worlds. We're going to go back to, to philosophy, thought experiments, and, and modal logic. Uh, like you, George MacDonald says this explicitly, and then Tolkien picks up on it. And and it's because Tolkien literally is, is reading George MacDonald as he's writing on fairy stories and, and other things, mm. he's sussing out his philosophy. Um, because um, the moral law is a part of God's essence, it is therefore the same in every possible world. And therefore, it must be the same in every imagined world, because an imagined world is a possible world. Mm. Uh, and so you can change whether the sun is green, you can change whether there are unicorns, you can change whether there are other sentient species, but you cannot change um, the moral law. And that's, I think that's a hugely important point. Uh, and I think that's what gives Tolkien's world and, and the, the worlds of other people that follow this sort of philosophy such verisimilitude is because that's what makes it feel real. Right, which, which as you pointed out earlier, is almost the opposite. I mean, we live in a culture now where, I mean, you take the issue of gender, for example, they, they view that as a chance. There's a view that that is a chance, for example, to rewrite, you know, to bring in the tabula rasa, rewrite what we're supposed to be about, just choose. It's like a, a, the, the ultimate weird choose your own adventure. And, and they, and the view is that fantasy literature falls into that category. And that is in fact, the opposite of Tolkien. I love what you said at one point, in the book, which I don't know how close to an exact quote it was from Tolkien, um, but but you said that the, that he saw that the power of fairy stories was to see things as they truly are, mm -hmm. and and that to me is fascinating because one of the things most closely identified with fairy stories with fantasy literature, you know, as it might nowadays be called, is 
is that it pe- folks think of it as separated from the world that it's that that it has but for Tolkien it's actually a tool to get in deeper to the deeper realities and reinforce those realities of the world um, which which are most important yeah fantasy literature is not an other world it is this world magnified in the, in one particular aspect well said so you're you're blowing up one element of this world so that you can look at it more closely I mean, and even you could say that goes back to like, that's, that's essentially what Joseph Campbell says with, uh, with the hero with a thousand faces is like, that's that look, every hero is part of our world. We're just magnifying that hero to, so that we understand it greater, or we see it in different perspectives and things like that. Yeah. Great literature. It's a microscope and not a telescope. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Is that yours? Can I? Uh, yeah. I just made that up right now. That is great. Wait, wait. <laughs> Thumbnail fantasy is not thumbnail for YouTube, <laughs> not a microscope, <laughs> not a telescope. Yes. All right. So um, we are we're running out of time. I think we're going to have to have part two. In fact, Let's like I feel like we can take just parts of this here and spend a whole hour like diving deep into some parts of, of your book and your thoughts. Like I, I would love to do that at some point. Um, particularly gonna, the whole idea. What? Go ahead, Michael. Absolutely. I'm just going to say to interrupt. I'm I'm just going to say uh, before we go, I will ask one question that Austin can then carry with him, so he can come back with a vigorous defense of it in his next one. Because I do have a challenge for him about the. I mean, oh. I, I I I have to admit uh, there was a little trepidation as a Roman Catholic coming into this book, um, uh, being written about my favorite Roman Catholic author. Uh, <laughs> I mean, my favorite one that wasn't God himself. That that um, okay. was. <laughs> was 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 so but but you you delivered i was very impressed and and your uh, grasp on uh, catholicism and the, the uh, theological some of the theological niceties between and distinctions and and the sort of a truer version spot on Good. so nothing to do with the catholicism side but there was one issue which when after i read it i thought really i read the whole chapter and this didn't appear and so i i thought i'd give you a chance to give an impassioned defense at least so maybe we'll do that we'll say that for the second time i'll, I'll leave i'll leave you with the question so you don't feel uh, trapped you want me to give it now jonathan or do you sure have give it now okay so not been, like I, i'm not i'm not bad mouthing other people that have like leveled criticism of the book but there have not been like a lot of criticisms that i have thought oh that's yeah, that's right. And this is, uh, to, to be clear, this is not a uh, a highly um, subtle criticism. This is this is more of a gap because I read your entire chapter. I've read all the chapters, but I read the whole chapter on Satan and demons, mm-hmm. and you give more airtime to the idea that wargs have demons in them than you do to Balrogs. You mm-hmm. mentioned Balrogs a couple times, but you've got a whole chapter on Satan and demons and not a, not a paragraph. And, and these are the demons that, I mean, the, even Legolas calls it a demon. And they're, it, it's, so I was, I was, yeah. I was like, Balrog. why on earth you have every other kind of demon in this chapter in, in his work, but you don't spend any time on Balrogs. So there, yeah. there's the, there's the uh, gap that I see. No, I think that's fair. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, well. I'd love to say more about Balrogs. The, the, the only thing I would say is that the, at the beginning of the of the angel chapter and the beginning of the demon chapter, I have a caveat that like these are major characters, like the mm-hmm. angels and the demons like show up throughout the whole corpus. And so in these particular chapters, unlike the chapter on Revelation, for example, or eschatology, I cannot be exhaustive uh, because mm-hmm. there's like it would entail an, an exposition of like the whole story. Um, so the idea of Balrogs having bodies kind of gets covered in the, the angelic incarnation. But there, I think that you're right. Like there is a lot more to be said about like how does their fall corrupt their assumed bodies or, you know, what, 
there there are some articles that I think I referenced at some point in further reading about um, like the the transmission, the the fact that that the fallen angels become embodied permanently and then begin to sexually transmit their nature into further generations, which is something that the the angels like the the Maiar don't do, uh, with a couple of very important exceptions. Right. Um, but yeah, that like that that deserves more exploration. Like so that's. That's a, okay. So Michael, here you go. Like this is this is why I wrote the book. Like, please tell us more about Balrogs. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, <clears throat> maybe we can uh, we can keep it for a book or a yeah, paper, I mean, a, guys, a paper I mean, later on. Well, like we say, I think your page your book is about what like five hundred pages long, mm-hmm. or so, with one hundred and twenty some odd pages of footnotes. And it's um, and like I said, here's the great thing about it is like it's it's the way I look at. Um, uh, what was I putting it? Oh, as of uh, uh, like Baron and Luthien, Tolkien's, uh, Christopher Tolkien's Baron and Luthien that he put out is like, you don't really, it's not the kind of book you read in, in a whole setting. You don't have to read it in a whole setting. You can like right. take, you can read the, the first part of it and like let it soak in and maybe, you know, find the notes that you like. And I, sadly, I had to try and get through it in a week, which meant I wasn't as uh, thorough as I wanted it to be. But I think it's the kind of book where you can like, you know, I'm going to take chapter six about the fall, read through that. And then each one of those is, is divided up into like two or three minutes two three page segments that you can you can go through and you can like follow easily so it's not mm-hmm. and it's not written sorry i i hate to be so complimentary austin so don't get let your head get too big right, I'll allow it. I, you know i've read a lot of <laughs> literary criticism that you come out of it going like what in the hell were they trying to say the entire book you have no clue and in here i feel like you've d- divided up into little sections that allow you to swallow it to chew it to digest it and to understand it without the trappings of um uh, what, what's the best word of looking for? Without the trappings of uh, literary vocabulary that make things more obtuse. Yeah. So good that's, job. Mm-hmm. I like I, it. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I, that's, that makes me feel good because that's something that I was deliberately trying to do. Um, yeah. So there, there are times where I explain what basic theological terms are because I'm conscious that there are some people that like like Tolkien but don't really know very much about theology. And then there are some times where I try to do the opposite. I try mm-hmm. to make it yeah. accessible. Um, so that's it's good to hear that that at least for you I succeeded. But yeah, I mean it's meant it can be read straight through, it, sure, but it's, sure. it's meant to, to also be able to yeah. function as a reference work because like as a systematic theologian, like most of the systematic theology is like you know three volumes of a thousand pages. <laughs> I'm, not, <laughs> so I'm, true. I'm a professional yeah. systematic theologian. I'm not going to sit through and read all of those at once. Right, spell. I'm right. Dip in where I need to. Right. Uh, so I tried to make that as easy to do as possible. Hmm. Good. Well, I will put a link to it uh, wherever you want me to, probably Amazon or wherever it's easiest to purchase it from. So for our for our fans and yes. listeners, the best place to buy it is directly from Lexum uh, Press. Lexum that is where you're going to put a link to it. The, the best prices, and uh, that is where you're going to get the okay. I think the fastest. So. Do they have a digital copy too? You can get from there. There is. So there is a, yes. a digital version. I'm. And then there's also one for Logos Bible software because it's the same parent company that that oh, okay. Faithlab. Yep. Um, so you can put that in your Logos library as well. But yeah, there's right. awesome. print and digital copy. Awesome. All right. Well, be, before we shut it down, any brief questions, finally, Dan or Michael, that you want to throw out there? You know, I just wanted to say I, I really appreciated this book that it's this, it sits on this intersection of of obviously of Tolkien and Christianity and and Middle Earth and Christianity, I should say. And there, there's lots of books out there that I've seen where it's it's they try to make sloppy allegories like, you know, Jesus is, is uh, Aragorn. And, and and this this is a book that comes at it um, in a careful way and in a measured way. And it's it's a 
It's, it comes from a place of knowledge of, of knowing what, what Tolkien himself believed about all these different topics and how you can see, I think this book for me really solidified um, the idea of there being applications. Um, if it's not an allegory, you can definitely make an application. And so for anybody who's interested in that, I would say, check this book out. Yeah. It's, it's, it's got a lot of, of meaty theology to, to go through. And, and as you read it, you're learning more about Tolkien, the man. And, um, that, that, that can help inform when you're reading through middle earth, uh, the stories in middle earth. It, it's really, it, it's really, uh, really good. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, yeah. I, I guess my final question is how can we get you to speak at the Tolkien society's, uh, call for papers in 2023? Well, I don't, I don't know. I don't even know, know if you're doing Tolkien this here. wants <laughs> to speak at the Tolkien Society. I don't know. I mean, like, I'm not, I'm, we keep talking yeah. about the Tolkien Society as if like everybody in the Tolkien Society um, is like a, a, a woke advocate. Like, I think that there are some very crucially placed people that are, yeah. but. Um, hmm. It's just the people that are setting the agenda that are generally, it seems like it, that's. Well, and it's, and it's, I mean, that's, that's mainstream literary criticism right now. So. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. All right, guys. A, um, are we doing a subscriber part this time or not? We are. We are. We're going to jump into that. Um, and if you want that, you can go ahead and become a supporter at thewandering.com slash patrons, $4 a month. First month is free. You get the Discord. If we're really boring on Discord and don't offer any great memes in our meme channel, then you can quit. You guys, I'm about to be really, really interesting. So make sure that you subscribe. <laughs> That's right. Thank you. That's and right. uh, and yeah, or, or you can or you can go on YouTube and click the join button, which is next to the subscribe button and become a member there. But it's a dollar more because YouTube takes 30 percent and I don't want to I don't want YouTube to, to take more than they need. So anyway. All right. So we are going to jump into our subscriber portion. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. And we will Bye, see freeloaders. you on the other side.